Today in a special episode, we'll be interviewing Bilal Baig, star of the CBC and HBO Max series, Sorta. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment and question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. But today is a special episode. Today, we'll be interviewing Bilal Baig, star of the CBC and HBO Max series, Sort Of. Everybody, our guest today is Bilal Beg. Who is Bilal Beg? Those of you who are not in the know might be asking. Bilal made history by being the first South Asian queer Muslim actor to star in a Canadian primetime series. That series is called Sort Of. It has won top honors, not just at the Canadian Screen Awards for Best Comedy Series. It also received a Peabody Award in the entertainment category in 2022. Illustrious. Peabody Award. It was also nominated for Outstanding New TV Series category at the 33rd GLAAD Media Awards in 2022. It has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Asif, if you're going to tell us how uncommon that is, you are on Rotten Tomatoes every all the time. Day, Listen, believe, that is, time. I've never seen that. Like 100%? It's, it's crazy. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Everybody, please welcome. Feel free to clap in your cars, in your homes. Bilal Beg is with us. Hi, Bilal. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Very happy to do so. I Just before we got on, I was saying you're a hot commodity. You're in demand. There's people clamoring for your time all the time. So I'm very happy that we get to make time with you here. I wanted to ask you a little bit, even though we have spent some time together on the set of Sort Of, that's another place where people are clamoring for your time, as one would expect. You're the lead in the show. So I don't feel like I've gotten a full picture of your of your life. And I think that's what we wanted to at least start off with, just talking about your background. You are Pakistan-born, if I'm not mistaken, right? Mm-mm. Born here, but my sister, my parents, all, all born in Pakistan. Oh, you have siblings who were born. So you were born here at a young, pretty young age, I guess? Yeah, I was born at yeah, zero. That would be... You know? that would be... Quite young, yes. Why don't you tell us a bit about growing up? You grew up in the suburbs because of Toronto, I guess, because I guess I grew up in the suburbs of Ottawa, Ali in the suburbs of Montreal. So on the surface, a lot of similarities. So tell us about a bit about growing up then in Ottawa after you were born in this country. Although yeah. you did you did just say growing up in Ottawa, so if I just Oh did I? Oh, but you God. know. Yes, we're we're a mess. We're a goddamn. Man. It's okay. It's so early. I asked for such an early time. I'm sorry. <laughs> Bilal was so embarrassed that uh, you decided to do this. <laughs> oh, it's great. It's great. I was in Scarborough in the East General Hospital. And then we moved around a little bit. My parents' jobs kept changing, you know, kind of classic experience of trying to land something that felt fulfilling, but they weren't getting those opportunities. And we ended up settling in Mississauga. And that's where I grew up. Like I was there for until the end of high school. And then when I wanted to go to theater school is when I chose to leave. I grew up with three siblings and sometimes my grandparents would be in our house too. So 
big family kind of vibes and and parents were very busy, like just kind of almost, I kind of sometimes don't recall seeing my father, especially like a lot. And I know that's because he was working multiple jobs. And But same with my mom, she was doing her thing and then also coming home to cook and, and feed four kids, which I imagine is <laughs> stressful and lots of big personalities in my family too. And so I felt like as a kid, there was no point in competing with what I was up against. And so I think I, the kind of more laid back, observant, terrified route and stayed in that place for a very long time. I'm interested in what you were saying about your parents sort of trying to figure out what stuck and doing different things. Were they creative in any way? Would you describe them as creatives? Were they, was it sort of blue collar jobs? Was it professional work? What, what kind of work were they doing? convenience stores. It was taxi driving. It was courier. My mom, I think at a time was in an office, but then her main gig was at Baskin Robbins where she wrote on ice cream cakes and ice cream kind of thing. And, and then my dad, I still kind of don't know what he did for the bulk of his life. I know it was something in, do you know that company Whirlpool? They make like laundry machines. Sure. He was in a, I'm not laughing at his job. Sorry. I'm just, it's just so funny that I don't know that much about him and he's alive and I could like text him. (laughs) I mean, that speaks to the competing personalities in the home and the quietness and the terror that you lived with. Why would you say you did suggest terror? You suggest you were scared. The big personalities were, uh, there was a aggressiveness about them as well. Is that, is that what you'd say? I would say so. Yeah, I think kind of in almost all my family members, except my mom, she was also the other one I felt in the family who was like, wow, there's a lot going on. I'm just going to stay quiet. But I thought my sister has grew up with quite a temper. And so often there were arguments for sure. And yeah, it felt quite loud. And then also young kids have so much energy and And then also, I think there's a part of me that was, I was a deeply shy kid. So in school, I'd I'd be scared to speak, you know, if a teacher asked me a question. So I was, I was in that camp of kids. So everything was terrifying. Very interesting that you would choose theater school after that sort of background of observing and not, and being too shy to speak. What made you think theater school was the right place for you so early on? Well, it's interesting because it's, I found in high school that I loved writing. I discovered writing in in high school and wrote plays and, you know, got nice feedback from my drama teacher. And I thought, okay, like I can, maybe I can do this. So I didn't want to train as an actor. I I, had kind of dabbled in acting in high school too, and, and kind of liked it, but again, was very terrified of it. And loved writing because I could really escape. And it is a medium in which you can express ideas, but you don't have to be seen or torn apart in in that way. And I didn't get into any writing school. I had applied and I had just heard about this program at Humber where at that time they were really focused on not just churning out great cookie cutter actors, but also artists who have voices and have things to say and, and want to say them. And so I was writing on th- that while also training as an actor. And it just ended up feeling like the best fit, but it wasn't, I kind of approached theater school apprehensively too. Like it wasn't like, yes, I'm in. And I was terrified doing that as well. (laughs) And by the way, for our listeners, Humber is a college 
in Toronto in the outskirts of the greater Toronto area. They teach comedy there. They teach writing, creative writing. There's a cooking department as well. So it's a pretty broad array of offerings at, at Humber College. And then what was the next step then, Bilal, in terms of you? I know you wrote a play that was quite well-received, Acha Bacha. So how did that all come about? That started, oh, I, I forgot a year in my life to tell you about. Do tell, before do tell. I, went to Humber, I forgot a whole year. Before I went to Humber, I was at the University of Guelph for a year. And that I also really, really didn't want to do. But my parents were like, we really don't want you to do theater, but if you're going to do it, it has to be at a university so that you can teach it because we know you're not going to kind of make it as an artist or just as a full-time <laughs> writer, you know? And that made a lot of sense to me at that time. And, but I didn't want to do it, but then I said, yes. And I tried it for a year and was so miserable and was failing everything. But the one class I didn't fail was a playwriting class taught by Judith Thompson, who's this kind of prolific Canadian playwright who I was obsessed with in high school because she's so twisted and dark. And I just wanted to stay in Guelph to take her class because I was a huge fan. And in that class was where Achebacha was born. She had just kind of unlocked this thing in me. But prior to writing that play, I was really focused on white people and writing stories about white people. I thought that's what would sell and help me make it, you know, and and she was just like, don't do that and write what's true and write the stories you need to tell. And the culminating project of that playwriting class was the first draft of Echo Vecha, which was super rough and very different than what the published script is now. And once that started, because that had started before I got to Humber, I was already looking for different opportunities to keep working in support because I realized I couldn't do it on my own either. And, and then I through a youth theater festival called Paprika, which happens in Toronto, I was connected to another really amazing playwright. This was in 2014. Her name is Janet Sears, also prolific, really dynamic, strong voice. And she worked with me as a dramaturge on Achebacha. And when that program finished, I was in their playwrights unit. At the end of it, there was a sharing, and at that sharing was the artistic director of Theatre Past Mirai, Andy McCam, and he was kind of struck by the voice and gave me his card that the night the reading happened. And, you know, I thought I was like, I thought I had really, you know, top tier kind of theater success. And from that point, then it was five years from that point to when the production actually happened, but it. It was a good, long journey and difficult. And I was changing a lot as I was working on that play, as I was training as an actor. Identity stuff was really clarifying for me. And But the play was, a lot of people think like, because I finished school in 2016 and the play went up in 2018 and people think that it just kind of happened very quickly, but there were like five years of development on it before it went up and then another two years before it was published. I want to dig into Acha Bacha a little bit to tell people what it's about. It means, by the way, good kid, a good child, just to let people know what that means. I find it so interesting that you were writing stories about white people. In stand-up comedy, people, when they start, they write what they know. And that may not always be good. It may not always be well-developed, but you always write what you know, which is stuff that's close to home. 
you went outward and then came back to home. Is Achabacha something very close to home? Was it more of a personal story? It started as that for sure. And I needed it to be that way because I had so much stuff that I observed going back to observation as a child that I had nowhere to, I couldn't articulate it. I couldn't talk to my parents about what I was seeing in their home, you know, or, or friends. I also didn't have a lot of friends growing up. So, so this play kind of became the thing where I could actually put to paper or computer what I was thinking and feeling. And then over the years of development, it actually changed so much. And now when I look at the piece, I feel like maybe I want to say 20 to 30% of it is a fiction because I started to have fun with lying about what my mom might actually say in a situation to kind of pump up the drama, you know, and, and now it's, yeah, but, but it, it's definitely closer to who I am than, than what those white people plays I was writing in, in high school were. Sure. Well, I wanted to comment about that because there's, I'm just jumping into Sorter for a second, but there's one line from episode seven. It's kind of a throwaway line that I think many, let's say just white Canadian people may not have picked up on. It's when you're arguing with Aksa, who, you know, Sabi, your character is arguing with Aksa, who is your sister in the show. And Aksa says, we're first gen Paki, lying is our oxygen. And I'm like, wow, what a line. And I'm like, the fact that I know exactly what Aksa and Sabi are talking about in that, even though, again, we, you know, we we don't know each other. Uh, we grew up in different households, but I know exactly what you're talking about. So it's kind of like when you mentioned that about lying, I'm just like, there is a universality to that in terms of South Asians and that we tend to lie all the time when you're a teenager growing up. I don't know if other people kind of gleaned onto that as well, but I don't know. I just want to mention that. That was, that was a great line. It is. I really also, it's so loaded to me. Like you could unpack, you could write a thesis about that line in my mind, about the journey of immigrants who leave everything behind to come here. Let's say Canada and the US, for example, they leave everything behind and it's this brand new world. And that already takes so much. You have to be so malleable and so accepting of certain things that you would have never been accepting of back home. And then your children start to do things that are just like, my mother, I got an earring and it was the end of the world for my mother. I, I remember going to a movie with like, I don't know, three, four friends, female, male, five of us maybe. And my mother was like, well, I was 19 before I went to see a movie in, in New York City. We went, we were a group of 20 of us. And now what is this? I'm like, I, it's not that bad. I mean, it's just five of us. I'm not, I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, this could not be more halal. You know, this could not be more, it's like it's a group of friends from high school going to, and all these things were like mind blowing to my mother. And so lying is our oxygen is because do you want to deal with that drama with your parents or do you want to just live a smooth <laughs> life where your white friends in particular are like, yeah, yeah, I invited you and you came and that's the end of it. And I don't need to know about all the other rigmarole you had to go through just to get out of the house. So yeah, not an easy thing. I think less difficult, I, if I'm second generation, you know, my children will, ha will have it a little bit easier or, or significantly easier. But our particular situation with immigrant parents is, it's, it's very unique and there's, it's, it's loaded. It's loaded. It's a lot of fodder there. Can I ask you about what Achabacha was about? Yeah, sure. It was about a person who 
on on a day it, it happens over the course of one day in in this character's life and on that day he's having really severe flashbacks to a blurry moment in his childhood where he's unsure what kind of went down with a, an imam and the course of the play happens because this character is called to take care of his mom who is injured and also he's got a trans lover who talk about lying his mom does not know about and he's kind of stuck in this situation where there's a lot of pressure coming in on him at all points and ultimately the play is this exploration about childhood trauma the way memories deceive us and really actually what I love about it and maybe you know it sounds very dark as I'm talking about it and it kind of is that's also something I want more people to know about me. Like, I think because sort of is this huge thing I'm seen maybe or perceived as someone who's like sweet and kind, but I'm also like evil and twisted. And anyways, going back to the play, it's really about love. The love that this character has for his mom, has for his lover, and has a hard time accepting love given what kind of went down in, in his past and this, this mysterious kind of childhood he had. But I'm also being a little bit vague because I want people to read it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But you also suggest to me, and you tell me if I'm wrong, this conflict of the expectations of, you know, it's a very, very common thing that a Pakistani South Asian mother will say, this is my good kid, this is my good child. And that's from a young age. It's almost, it's borderline indoctrination. And... You want to be that kid because being that kid got you that love from your parents, right? But you also want to be yourself. And sometimes yourself will not be accepted by uh, the people who always thought you were a good kid. And it's just that little, it's, it's, you're always on the fence. You can always teeter over to the other side where the aunties start gossiping and wondering, you know, what happened to them? They were such a good kid and this kind of stuff. So I love that name. I love yeah. that name, and I'm I'm sort of going on about it just because not everybody that listens to the show, most people who listen to the show, won't uh, have a full appreciation of what that word means. It's 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 more than good kid, you know. It's 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 like my beautiful little boy, or like this is a well behaved, well mannered. It's just the word acha, but it's so much more than its literal translation, which is good. It's the pedestal that you put yes. your children up to. It's always the case, right? When these aunties get together, right, uh, Bilal and Ali, it's always bragging about their kids and this and that, and right? It, it happens all the time. I mean, I know it happens to other communities too, but that's the way we grew up. And so it's this pedestal that we put these kids on. Yeah, wow. I've seen it. I've never experienced it. There wasn't a lot to brag about <laughs> for a long time. I have a cousin, Zaki, who who Asif knows very well too. And it was so fun. Like my mother and his mother are like cut from the same cloth. And while all these Pakistani mothers were bragging about their children, he's in pre-med, he's in pre-med, even though it's really microbio and immuno year one. It's not really pre-med. But anyway, you know, they're all bragging about he's pre-law, he's pre-med. And then they would ask Zaki's mother, what does Zaki do? And she would be like, Ye to line, line change That's what he does. He changes his line. He changes his focus. That's all he does. And my mother would be like, God knows what he's doing. Right. And I'd be like, wow, that's a real, that's refreshing. That's borderline refreshing that you don't have to toe the same party line as everybody. Look at what I'm offering you here with my 
poli-sci, economics that's turned into poli-sci that's turned into, I think I'm going to quit university. Yeah. As if you were going to ask also about sort of the landscape, the Canadian landscape. Yeah. So at the time that sort of came out. Right? Yeah. I was, I was wondering about this because the evolution for much of much of then how did you come up with a premise for sort of, and how does, it seems like the, the Canadian comedy landscape is changing. I think Schitt's Creek really made the world sort of take notice. Like, you know, there is very good quality comedy shows coming from, from Canada. So maybe just take us through that whole journey of what happened next. The play came out, big success, lots of critical acclaim. And then how did that evolve into, into sort of? In a spirit of honesty, I will say the play wasn't totally this smashing critical success it was there's a ton of urdu in it and i think a lot of people a lot of non-urdu speakers had a problem with that and it wasn't translated in the production it's not translated in the book and so it was an interesting time after it came out because it was so many years of pouring everything into it and i would say the reaction was i mean i think people took notice because they were like whoa who's this young brown person talking about imams and queerness and muslimness and so I think that definitely helped. But if you search for the reviews, they're really like lukewarm at best. And and I think that's important to kind of talk about the picture of, of all of this, too, because I know what it feels like to pour something into something and then it not be what you hoped. And I think because people look at Atchabacha or they look at sort of and the way it's being received, there's. I just, you know, sometimes it's a little too easy to feel like I'm on this track of everything I do is like right or well-received because I think also when we look at the nuances of sort of, it's also, it's a great thing that's happening with the way it's being received, but on a numbers level, like we're not, a lot of people don't even know that sort of exists, even within the queer and trans world. I'm still meeting people who, who are discovering it or or don't know about it at all. And anyways, so just for that, and then going into actually answering your question, I had met Fab, who I co-create sort of with, later the same year that Achebecha had premiered at the end of kind of 2018. And we worked on a play together and neither of us were writers, we we're both actors. And there was after that process, it was a long process and Fab had just kind of, I think, the way we talk about it is he had noticed that I was able to make people laugh in the show with my performance. And, and he had known that I was a writer too. And so was curious about what my thoughts were on television and if I wanted to kind of ever create in television to which it, like, no, mostly overwhelming. So terrifying, you know, at that point I had just, survived being a playwright in a Toronto theater production that, you know, again, was not this thing that everybody came to, to see. And that was a lot for me, you know, and, and then Fab and I just started talking like loosely kind of passing ideas back and forth. Like I, I was open enough to, I will say one other theme I feel like I can identify in my own life is things that terrify me don't freeze me you know they actually do the opposite I move towards them because I'm curious and I think maybe slightly sadistic and and so this thing about t television was like okay well what could it be like if me and, and Fab were to make something together and I was curious about 
our worlds coming together, right? Like we're pretty different people and in so many ways, not just identities, but the way our personalities. And, and so I was just curious, like it felt like it would be a challenging thing that might be artistically rewarding to create something with someone like Fab. And in 2019, we were tossing ideas around, kind of landed on something brought Sphere Media, which is formerly Sienna Films. Fab had a connection there with Jennifer Quadra and they were interested right away and gave us some money to shoot a a very short kind of teaser. And we did that at the end of 2019. And in January of 2020, we were greenlit by CBC off of a four minute kind of teaser and a couple of pages of what we thought maybe the first season might feel like. Some of the other characters who weren't featured in in that teaser. And that I know was, everyone said, this is unreal. Like this rarely ever happens. I was going to mention it if you didn't. I was going to mention it. By the way, not not a typical path, very unorthodox and very amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I heard the word landscape a little bit earlier. And I feel like that was, you know, it, I, I imagine receiving something like sort of at a time where I'm pretty sure Schitt's Creek had ended or was ending. Kim's Convenience was ending. There was a, I can't remember if this is actually true or if I'm making it up now, but I, I feel like at CBC, there was a desire to find a comedy-ish show that featured diverse characters and diverse and queer characters, you know, and then here sort of comes on your desk. And it, I, I think that that teaser, that four minute teaser did such a good job of capturing the tone of the show, you know, and Amanda who plays Seven was in it and Gray who plays Paul and Kaya who plays Violet, Paul's daughter. We were, were all in the, and Alora as well, who plays Ruffo, Sethi's mom. We're all in this teaser and it, it, yeah, it just gave a real clear picture of what the feeling of the show is and who some of the characters are and rest was history or whatever. I really, I find it so fascinating just to go back a little bit about the roots of your writing, which were white people stories to a play that was significantly in Urdu. And unapologetically so, not even creating any kind of, I I don't even know how you would do it in a play, but somebody would be, you know, translate it somehow. And I think that's very interesting. And then, you know, we we get to bring some Urdu out into, in in sort of, and I think it gives it this complexion, this, it's like this little fiber running through. I, I just can't say enough good things about that. I cannot say enough good things about that world that you created. I wanted to talk about the comedy of the show. You know, as you said, Fab was really attracted to the fact that you can make people laugh. And you just said the word comedy-ish, which I find interesting. You know, I was telling Asif early on when I was in Sort Of, I said, this is a comedy unlike anything I've ever done. This is not, you know, in the world of, I don't know what jackass and you know, stuff that's like way over the top like look at me look at me yeah, I'm two and a half funny. men two and a half men right like two and a half men know, sure nothing, like a chuck laurie well, project yeah, you know those those nail it on the head sort of comedy sitcoms beat the comedy out of it this is so subtle this is so subtle and there were times where fab would have to come up to me and be like hey you see your arms yeah staple them to the side of your legs i'm like what 
Really? Not even a gesticulation as an Indian Pakistani uncle? Not even a this? He's like, nothing. Just staple them. It's a training, you know, which I don't have. I don't have that way to sort of really sometimes ground myself in this this show. It's like, is that just the comedy that comes naturally to you? Is that something you had to work on? Or is that what you aspired to create? I think, you know, I talked about the differences between me and Fab, but a, a similarity for sure was was our sense of humor. Like, I think it was so easy to to kind of pump out story and start flushing out characters because we were just making each other laugh. And so I actually think that it was his kind of energy that helped me realize that this could be funny or or like if I'm making him laugh, maybe other people like him would would laugh too. And I, I just hadn't thought about it that way. At, I had kind of done a far swing into only almost exclusively working with like queer trans people of color and, and was kind of forgotten what white people were <laughs> like to work with. And I was doing smaller like theater projects and community arts projects. And then when we started working together, yeah, it was, I think it really is about us two together. And that's where that tone and that sense of comedy kind of comes from. But I, I do feel like it's inherent in me. Like these are the things that do make me laugh. Like I love in the first episode when Sebi says, when they're with Seven at the art gallery with the Chia vulvas and, and at the end of the scene, they say totally Allahu Akbar. Like that to me is <laughs> so like, funny. Uh, I love that line. Right? I don't know. Did I answer your question? Well, I guess where I was going with was like, what comedy has influenced you? What are your comedy influences? And and was it easy to do this type of comedy because this is exactly what you love in comedy? Or was this a process to to really bring down the comedy and keep it so low-key and deadpan? I'll answer that first. No, that was not hard. I do think that there, I was so attracted to... I like quieter things. I like smaller things. I like the work that I am gravitated to in, in film and TV is often these films where lead characters have all of like 10 lines and the whole kind of thing. And it like that feels like really juicy for me. And and then when I think about people who who genuinely make me laugh, like lately I've I mean, I've loved Aubrey Plaza for a while, but I think now she I just saw this movie she's in called Emily the Criminal. It's not funny, but I think she, everything she has such a specific kind of energy to, and I'm, I'm fascinated. And she's choosing these like super independent, smaller scale kind of productions and then bringing her kind of vibe to it. That's someone who I think about when I think about funny and funny, not just, I mean, I think when I know her big thing was kind of Parks and Rec and that, it, we could also talk about deadpan a little bit too, because there's, I feel like what she's doing now feels like sometimes deadpan. I, I don't know. I don't think it has, it sometimes is just like, okay, just say everything dryly and it'll be funny. And I think there's way more nuance to it. And that's what I feel like I try to search for, particularly in performing Sebi. And, and when I look at some of Aubrey's work kind of after Parks and Rec, I feel like that's it. There's a way to do this to be honest in the dryness and to also not push for the jokes because I feel like if you're being honest and you're tired, which, you know, characters like Sebi, at least I know for sure are, those things are funny. You know, it's hard to kind of muster up energy when you're working a bunch of jobs and trying to survive as a 
brown trans person in the world, you know? Well, it's interesting. I don't know if you saw Aubrey Plaza in Legion. That was the show I saw after she left Parks and Rec, which is a superhero show. So I was into it. And that's when I realized, okay, Aubrey Plaza is a is a great actress, right? Like you see that expanding just from that deadpan. So I, I totally agree with you on that. I, I did want to follow up on something you said before. And so, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the medicine in your show, because there is there is quite a bit of medicine. And, and, and I, I'm wondering about that. So obviously, I'm not going to ruin it for people who haven't seen the show. But there is a lot of neurology in the show uh, with, you know, someone with a head injury, comatose, and then towards uh, as the series goes on, are they still in a coma or not? And then Sabi's mother has this swallowing issue, which I think is achalasia. I think that's perhaps that they had, if I'm trying to diagnose it from across the screen. And, and it has a swallowing issue. And of course, all this culminates in the hospital. And so I was drawn to what you had said before about how a lot of things people take a step back from, you take a step towards. And hospitals are one of those things. I mean, I work in a hospital, so I'm not stressed by a hospital, but so many people are like, I can't even stand the smell of a hospital. I need to leave immediately because of all the traumatic experiences that they've been associated with. So how does the hospital environment kind of fit in? Because so much of these dramatic scenes take place in the hospital. So how do you kind of approach that? In the writing of it or the performing of it or all? What drew you to that, like in terms of being uh, this center for drama? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty organic in that we knew the kind of the main event of the pilot is this one character getting into an accident. And, and we knew that that would be a kind of a major through line through the whole show. How does that affect the kids and Sebi and other characters? And what was fun was in the writer's room, we had this like wonderful writer's room where we were just throwing out ideas and seeing what could be fun. Truthfully, I guess I'm allowed to say this, like on a budget level, we knew that there had to be one episode that kind of took place in one location to just, you know, save money a little bit. And then it became really fun to think about the hospital as that place, you know, because it, it you know, we, we try to go for as real as possible on our show and, Sure, there's always, in I think, in art, television, you can stretch the truth a little bit. And I think we do that a little bit with some of the medical stuff, too. But I thought that with the hospital, it, it, it's a great space where lots of different people would be there anyways, you know. And that episode in particular, a big kind of reveal comes out to the mom about Sebi's job and everything. And it felt totally right and fun and dynamic like we especially when you bring kids in too that's a lot of fun to kind of keep track of where everybody is but I yeah I didn't it's also interesting that hospital is kind of featured in Achabacha as well and I think I want to move away from that now I feel like maybe I'm too obsessed but I'm pretty sure that the conceit of that third episode which happens in the hospital I can't remember exactly where it came from but I know it was in the writer's room where we discovered it and it wasn't an idea that Fab and I had that we knew for sure we wanted going into the process. I want to ask about something that I'm sure people wonder about. You mentioned that maybe 20 to 30% of Achabato was autobiographical. When it comes to sort of what part, how much of that is taken from your own life and your own experiences? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, I mean, I think about probably about the same. For a little while, I was a nanny and I thought we just, I thought that was so funny. Like I was not that focused and because I think we we wanted Sebi to be you know they're the lead so there is this 
strange dance of likability. And so we didn't want to create a show about a trans person being a shitty nanny, I guess. So so we couldn't go c- completely autobiographical. And I think Sebi's a far better nanny than I am. And but but kind of beyond that, you know, my relationship with my mom is very different than the relationship Sebi has with theirs, you know. So that's not necessarily autobiographical. This relationship I have with my sister is very different than the one Sebi has with Exa. I think Shiraz is definitely like I have an uncle like Shiraz for sure. So yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of Shiraz is the character that I play on the show. And Bilal, I think we were at the Gillers. Bilal, Bilal said to me, "My brother said, how did you capture every shitty Pakistani uncle we had in that one person?" <laughs> and I was like, "I." I think that's a compliment. I think I'll take that as a as a win, you know, because that's what we in the first season anyway. That's what we were were going for, you know. This person would be completely not just uncomfortable, but completely bewildered and and be vocal about it, probably as well, right? That that, that type of a character. Now I have to mention something. This is a bit of an Easter egg, which I'm going to ask Ali and Bilal about. So. I was watching the show, and I'll, I'll get to in a second, in a couple of minutes, how I kind of was a bit late to the game for the show. But I was watching it, and I was like, Ali, I knew played the uncle. He had told me that. But then there's a phone call between Sabi's mother and Sabi's father, who is in the Middle East, who's working there. So has not been around a lot and, you know, is unaware of a lot of these developments that have occurred over, say, the past little while for, for Sabi. And I'm listening to it, and I'm like, wait a minute, I thought Ali played the uncle because the voice on the other end of the line is Ali's voice. Like, I know enough. I mean, we do a podcast together. I'm like, I, this is Ali's voice, but he's playing the uncle. But then I realized, no, it is the father. So th- that's a little Easter egg, right? Like Ali and Bilal, Ali was doing the voice for the father. How'd that come about? Yeah, I mean, that came about because we had not cast an actor to play the father and we knew Ali's command of, you know, the Urdu language. And I don't know exactly how it went down, Ali, for you in terms of it happened in post. Like it was one of the last ish things that we kind of did before releasing the show, you know, which was getting that voiceover. Yeah, it went down for me as a surprise, actually. I, I went into the audio room where I was going to do this this audio work, and there were two characters on it, and I told the guy who was running the audio room, I'm like, oh, this sheet is not mine. Uh, I'm not playing that character. And they were like, just hold on to that sheet right now. <laughs> it's like, All will be explained in a few minutes. So then just sort of in the moment, I had to be like, oh, no. I need a new voice. You know, Fab explained to me remotely. This was during a time of uh, great COVID. So uh, it was all remote and Fab was in my ears from uh, some other location. It was like, we were wondering if you would do this second voice of the father. And I was like, oh yeah, I could do it. But in the moment, I was like, I I need a new voice. I need a new thing. Who is this person? Who is this father? And clearly didn't do a good enough job to fool my childhood friend over here. Just in the last couple of minutes, Bilal, I want to mention what I was talking about before in terms of the show. I'll be very upfront. I love this show. It is the best new show I've seen this year, without a doubt. And I was late to it. He Ali watches a lot of shows. Watch... He should be, his <laughs> wife and children should have left him a long time ago. I don't understand how he, yeah. I, I, I don't even know how he has a job. Television. He watches a lot of television. 
It is amazing. And I was late to the game. Ali said he was on it. I'm like, okay, I'll get around to it. And then probably in the spring, Rick Mercer was in town doing a comedy show. A lot of Ali's friends were on the show. So Ali was kind enough to invite me for dinner. I was sitting with Ali and his wife and Rick Mercer at the dinner. And Rick's like, have you seen this show? Sort of. And then Ali, I, I believe I'm paraphrasing, was like, yeah, no, I've been on the show. You know, I'm on the show. And he's and like, of course, he's like, this show is amazing. He just has so much praise for it. So I'm not saying I take Rick Mercer's word over Ali's, but I did after that binge a show. I watched it all in one day on CBC Gem. And honestly, I love this show. I think the smartest thing about it is the way you frame it in that this dilemma that, that somebody becomes involved with in, in the first episode. Again, not really revealing too much because I, I think the surprise is good, but because it's a dilemma everybody has. You have your own dreams, hopes, and aspirations, but then are you living your life for other people and your commitment to other people and how you balance that? And it permeates the whole show. I think there's a quote from Roger Ebert where he says, empathy is the most essential quality of civilization. And, you know, Roger Ebert was a movie critic, and but he I think it applies for TV too. He says, movies and TV are the most powerful empathy machine in the arts. And... I cried several times in the show, but the scene that affected me the most was when Subby puts on an old outfit, you know, the, the sweats, traditionally kind of what a male person would wear, even though that's not how Subby identifies now. And I just couldn't believe it. And so I just want to just say that, that the show is amazing. I, I mean, I guess I don't really have a question, but I'm just, I just wanted to let you know, it is great. I really can't recommend it enough for people. I also, touching on that, I don't know how to say this, Bilal, other than, you know, it's such a, on paper, I think it feels like a very niche show. I toured a show called Muslim Interrupted, and the producer I was working with in Edinburgh was like, mm, I don't know if you put the word Muslim right in the show, there are people, as you know, this is a faith-based show, they're going to think, and it's just not their thing. And also it's Muslim, so people, and I was just like, no, I, I kind of want that. I kind of want people who are open to this idea to be at the show. I don't want to sneak it on them. You know, I closed the doors. We're, you know, we're doing a Muslim show, suckers. You know, I wanted it to be all there. It's a little different in your case. It's Muslim, queer, trans, Pakistani. I mean, do you have a sense that people are like, ah, this show is... Maybe not for me. I, I don't think I would get into that. So they just ignore it because of that. Because I know some people who reluctantly watched and then were just like, holy shit, this show is unreal. Because Subby's trans identity is almost, it's, I don't know, it's, it's just like, there's so much relatability. The trans thing just sort of fades into the background. And it's, that's not, even if you can't relate to I don't know. I have a hundred things to say about that. You know, people are always, especially in literature, they're always like, oh, this book doesn't really, I don't see myself in this book. And, you know, somebody on Twitter once said, hey, it's not a vanity mirror. It's art. Extend yourself and appreciate what it is. And I've said that on the show before. I think I just have to echo that again, that you may not see yourself in the bio of the show, but extend yourself and watch the show. Have you gotten any sense of that like people don't watch it because they, they're like I don't know that's not really about me that's not really my thing yeah I think there must be a lot of that out there and there is you know the experiences of people who do approach it reluctantly and then yes I've heard stories of people completely being so surprised at what they feel and how deeply they feel when they 
when they watch the show. But I, I think so. I think honestly, and maybe this is not great to say, but in some ways I living in the body that I'm living in and with the perspective I have on this world, there is a part of me that feels that sort of is ahead of its time. Like, and I know that's weird to say, cause we're living in it, but there's just something that tells me that we're not quite ready for a lead that looks like, like I think it's off of the poster. People are like, no way I'm never going to get into that, you know? And yeah, I, I think that's a tragedy of our current times. I, I, I'm excited about maybe what the future is, particularly for what the show can do for our world and our ability to exactly kind of extend ourselves. And, but I think definitely because we're not, again, you know, the fact that I can, I exist in Toronto. I live quite close to like one of the queerest Queen West kind of hipstery queer neighborhoods. And a lot of people don't know who I am. Right. And there's nuances in when we talk about trans non-binariness too. Like there's within the community as well, there's pose happened. And I think that did some major things for our, our community, but those girls look a very specific way. And when you don't kind of look like that, then that also makes you different, right? And then the brownness and the Muslimness. And so, yeah, I, I think so. But, you know, maybe if there's something in, in seeing what, what happens over time, because I kind of love, I'm not being recognized everywhere because then I'd have a really hard time leaving my apartment. Right. You know? Well, okay. So let's touch on the flip of that. You, you, there's places where you think maybe you will be recognized and you're not. What about, you know, and this is something that I've, I struggle to come to terms with this where people go, oh man, you're this Pakistani actor and you're this Muslim actor or whatever the, the, the hyphen they want to use. And then they go, uh, you're a role model. And I'm like, oh God, you don't, that's, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. You become something potentially, but this is not, I haven't spent the last 20 years thinking I can't wait until I'm a role model for others. That's, you know, your goals are so specific to you and then, and then they grow in certain ways and you're obviously influenced by people, but I'm like, oh man, this guy who's like sits in his room procrastinating for like hours on doing the very basic work. I don't feel like I'm a good role model for people. I'm not sure people should look up to me. I'm not sure what my connection to Islam is. It's a Muslim kid should look up to me. But there's no doubt in my mind that people look at you for different identities that you have and that you embody and say that you're a role model. How do you feel about that when that comes your way? I think it's nice. I think it's a strange thing because I, uh, yeah, similarly, maybe I, I don't identify as that, I guess, or I get it. I get it totally, but it's a weird way to frame my kind of approach to work. Right. Like, I'm not like, I'm going to create this show because I'm a role model or, or think about my role modelness while I work on my next project. But it's, it's nice that if, people are responding to the fact that it's great to see someone like me take space and, and, and be a part of how the product is made. I think that's great. I, I'm, I'm really interested in people maybe seeing me and being like, oh shit, I can do five different things on a project and pursue that, you know, moving yeah. us into like leadership and decision-making roles, I think. I just want more and more and more of that all over the place because I think that's the the answer or the that's how we combat like harmful stereotypes continuing to be pushed out when we're not in those roles in particular. But yeah, I don't know. I don't think about it that much. I also don't really think about, I don't like to, I, I like to just kind of 
do the work and then have a good time. And I'm not, I'm, I'm trying not to be flippant either, but it's just, it's, it's a nice thing and it doesn't completely infiltrate my brain because I don't know, I wouldn't know how to work if, if I was like, I'm a role model. (laughs) I think that's the healthiest approach. I think that's the healthiest approach. Like it's nice if it's happening, but I am not, this is not the vehicle that drives me. Yes. Yes. Day. Oh my yeah. God. That was so much more. I should have just said that. No, I no, no. I, I completely, look, I've wrestled with this for about five, five years. So I just had those words top of mind because it's like a constant, you know, it's, it's better than saying, uh, please back off. I don't need this right now. <laughs> I don't need the extra pressure. It's just that that's nice. And it is nice. And, and it's great, you know, from the perspective of representation, what you're doing is wonderful. But I also think I will say one more time, don't watch this for representation, watch it because it's a great piece of art, a great piece of work and the rest, whatever the rest is, it's just a very, very happy byproduct in my mind. So sort of premieres November 15th in Canada and December 1st in the US. Asif, I'm going to say, don't binge it. I'm going to say, give yourself time yeah, to digest uh, every yeah, episode. I know. So I know. I just loved it so moment. much. I couldn't, I couldn't help myself. I had to get, get through it all. I just loved it so much, but I agree. And so it's the second season, which is coming out in, in, in a couple of months. And so, yeah, uh, maybe when it comes out, then people can do one at a time. Sure. Uh, if you haven't watched it yet, the first season is on CBC gem in Canada, HBO max in the U S you can you can check that out and, and let us know. Tell us how you feel. Bilal Big, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. This was so great. I'm so glad we got to chat. And it's so funny, you, Ali and I working on set together. There's so many things that go on. And it's nice to just sit and chat and talk to you. And of you too, of course, Asif. Yeah. <laughs> we really appreciate you taking the time. It was great. And like I said, it's really an honor to meet you because I love what you're doing. That is it for today. Hope you enjoyed the show. Please do write in. We actually have a part two of this show in a sense. Uh, Asif, off the top, you said today is a special episode because it's entertainment focused only, but actually it's part one of a show that does have a medical component. Maybe you can tell people about that. Yeah, we're going to talk about in the next episode how to improve the care for trans persons, non-binary persons in the medical field. And so we're going to have some some experts on discussing that. It should be really exciting and a good uh, compliment to this episode with Bilal. Reach out to us, uh, drvcomedian at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. Let us know if you watch. Please watch Sort Of and let us know what you think about it. Honestly, cannot recommend it enough. And as Ali and Bilal will say, if you're a bit hesitant, you're like, I don't know. I don't really know. I'm not South Asian. I'm not trans. Would I relate to this? Trust me, you will because you're a human being and this uh, this show is all about the human experience. Reach out to us on social media, Dr. V Comedian, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We are everywhere. And remember... That although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only, and they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye.